Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. A very good morning, and you're welcome to today's Signpost webinar. I hope you're keeping safe and well uh, wherever you're uh, coming to us from today. Uh, the series uh, is brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland and the National Rural Network and Food Drink Ireland Skillnet. As we witness the great tragedy unfolding before our eyes in Ukraine, our hearts uh, go out to all those caught in this unnecessary war. Uh, There is growing frustration across the world with the sense of helplessness. However, I know that there are wonderful humanitarian agencies working hard to alleviate the suffering and distress being endured by the people of Ukraine. And if you haven't done so already, I encourage everyone to support these agencies in any way they can. The war in Ukraine has sent shockwaves across food and uh, fuel supply chains. And this week, the European Commission has proposed an outline of a plan to make Europe independent from Russian fossil fuels before 2030, starting with gas uh, in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, The Repower EU is a new package of measures which aim to double biomethane production from anaerobic digestion to 35 billion cubic meters by 2030. And it's expected that farmers across the EU will be incentivized through the cap to produce this biomethane in a bid to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian gas. So today we'll be discussing meeting our sustainability targets in agriculture at the Agri-Biomethane Opportunity. And I'm delighted to be joined by David Hagen from uh, Sustainable Agriculture Manager with Devonish and Russell Smith, who's partner with KPMG. Uh, Gentlemen, you're welcome to the Signpost webinar. Hi, Mark. Good to be here. Good morning. And we're also joined by Porik Foley uh, with Chagas, who's going to help us with questions later on. Good morning to you, Porik. Morning, Mark. How are you? Great, great. Um, so uh, maybe starting with you, David, uh, perhaps you could just give us a little bit of background to the work that you're doing with Devonish. Obviously, sustainability is, is a very important part of the work that you're doing in Devonish. Uh, absolutely, Mark. So, yeah, so my role um, consists of maybe taking the learnings out of our um, research farm up in Dowd County Mead, the Heartland project is going on there, doing a lot of work there. So taking the learnings and the insights out of that, making them actionable and practical and how do we implement them and build the capacity on Irish farms to be more sustainable in the future. Great. Thanks, David. And, and Russell, could you tell us about the work you're doing in, in KPMG? Yeah, so I lead our dedicated ESG and climate advisory practice known as KPMG Sustainable Futures, and we're helping uh, corporates and, and public sector really go on the, the, the ESG and decarbonisation journey. We do an awful lot of work in the agricultural sector, and we've also, for the last 10 years, been working in, in anaerobic digestion, biomethane. And to date, you know, we have supported uh, the deployment of about 50% of all anaerobic digestion on the island of Ireland. Um, and so we're going to bring some of those learnings to, to today's discussion. Great. So it's, look, it's a really hot topic. Obviously, the, the situation in Ukraine has focused our minds on our, our, our sources of fuel. So uh, this, this couldn't have come at a more opportune time. So what we'll ask you to do, um, to I think, David, you're starting the presentation for us um, and uh, yeah. share, share your screen with us. So, uh, David and Russell, I'll hand over to you and looking forward to your presentation. Great. Thanks a lot. So, um, so look, good, good morning, everyone, and thanks for, for joining us. Uh, so KPMG and, and Devonish were engaged uh, recently by Gas Networks Ireland to undertake uh, a study 
titled Meeting Our Sustainability Targets in Agriculture. And it's looking at uh, a report trying to address some of the key challenges that have been identified um, on biomethane and its deployment in Ireland and systematically looking at those and bringing evidence um, and real world experience to, to answer those questions. And so just as set a, a bit of background and context, so anaerobic digestion is considered a proven technology. There are you know, over 10,000 examples of it deployed across Europe. There have, however, been a number of environmental and economic concerns cited, which has hampered its development in Ireland. And it is clear that Ireland is behind the curve in biomethane deployment. Um, Northern Ireland has an awful lot of AD. There's over 90 AD plants deployed um, across Germany. You know, there's many, many um, uh, thousands. Uh, you have France, um, you have the Netherlands, you have Denmark. So a lot of jurisdictions have mobilized and are mobilizing at pace on this. Ireland to date has been very hesitant on this technology. And that's been down to, to these uh, challenges and, and questions which have been raised. Um, so the aim of this report was to systematically address those questions um, and to provide the scientific and real world data. Um, and we want to provide evidence uh, that the development of a sustainable uh, biomethane industry is technically feasible. Um, what we've concluded, however, and you'll see later on, is that there is a risk that if it's not developed in a coordinated manner, you know, there definitely is risk um, that there could be unintended negative consequences. So there are learnings from other jurisdictions. It has to be done right. But we have concluded that it is absolutely possible uh, to deliver a sustainable uh, and economically viable biomethane industry in the country. So the first sort of question that we have uh, looked at is, does the development of an Irish agricultural-led AD industry align with current and emerging policy direction? So David, do you want to flick on to that? So, so we've looked at you know, a number of the core uh, policy areas. So EU farm to fork, um, EU's biodiversity strategy, climate action plan, uh, AG climatize. And what's remarkable is just how many boxes the anaerobic digestion on biomethane um, industry would be able to tick. So just to take you know, a couple uh, of examples, um, the EU farm to fork um, is looking to promote a, a circular bio-based economy. You know, and the AD sector is perfectly aligned to that. It's about taking farm wastes and other wastes, um, putting them through, converting them into energy, and then at the back end, using the resulting digestate uh, as a fertilizer. Um, so that's a perfect example of the bio uh, circular economy. Um, there's also an awful lot of push um, to move to organic farming and the ability of, of anaerobic digestion to produce this nutrient risk, uh, risk rich fertilizer at the back end is perfect to displace chemical fertilizers. Um, and, and again, that very much aligns with where the biodiversity strategy is looking to go. And David will talk to other benefits that, that this could bring to biodiversity. The Climate Action Plan very specifically talks about exploring opportunities for farmers to get involved in anaerobic digestion um, to increase the use of inorganic nitrogen uh, or reduce their use of inorganic nitrogen fertilizer. And AG Climatize, again, calls for pilot schemes, raw farm uh, carbon trading and, and anaerobic digestion. So, so this is one of the technologies which ticks so many boxes. And you can see, as was introduced by Mark at the start, the European policy level is also fully supportive of biomethane. It's one of the few opportunities we have uh, to produce um, natural gas alternatives uh, domestically and have our own uh, security of supply. 
So, so the policy alignment, I think, is without question, um, and I think you know it's a it's a, a very much a tick against that question. The second question, and probably the one that comes up most over the last ten years that I've been involved in the sector, is: Can Ireland grow sufficient incremental feedstock to supply a biomethane industry without impacting current animal feed dynamics? So, I'd say. 90% of the challenges that are put towards biomethane is that. So David um, in particular has led a lot of the research looking at the feasibility of this and how we can do this uh, without impacting the feed available to Ireland's national herd. So hand over to you, David. Thanks, Russell. And good morning, everybody. <clears throat> so yeah, so we are looking, looking at the ability to grow, grow more grass in Ireland. And I suppose the, the opportunity that we um, identified is soil fertility in Ireland. So again, this is building on, on our work in doubt and looking at our soil improvement program. But when we look at the, the Chagas Soil Atlas data, look approximately, um, when you take all Ireland into account, 20% or 21% of our soils are at optimum fertility. So that's optimum for pH, optimum for phosphorus, and optimum for potassium. Um, so we look at this as the opportunity that um, if we can increase and, and optimize that fertility, we can grow incremental amount of grass that can be directed towards the biomethane industry over and above the needs of the national herd, the, uh, over and above the needs of the national herd currently. And the second thing, um, the second um, opportunity there is obviously AD in its anaerobic digestion in its design is very circular. So 95% um, of the material you put into a digester is going to come back out as digestate. And that is going to be a better, um, better fertilizer. So it'll be more mineralized in your NPs and Ks. So again, that can displace um, artificial and artificial fertilizers coming into Ireland. Um, maybe just to, to give a little background on our on our thinking and how we developed this project. Is that this project um, is of the knowledge capital produced in doubt. In doubt, we have the Heartland project. That is a systems experiment, and what it does, it compares directly compares multi-species forage to ryegrass to perennial pasture. So this is where we get our this is where we get our data from, and we are looking at the opportunity of correcting soil fertility using multi-species forage to reduce our nitrogen in input to produce this forage, and then targeting the lands in Ireland that are capable of um, that are capable of being um, improved. And having this and having this output. So what we did at the start of the project, one, we had to look at how much land in Ireland could we is there available uh, for multi-species forwards. So to do this, what we did is we looked at um, there are um, there are four hundred and fifty uh, million hectares of grassland available in Ireland. What we did then was take off all high nature value land and nature land. So obviously that uh, they they can't be improved. And we also then looked at the looked at the land that was needed for the dairy industry, and um, and raising raising their young stock. This brought us down to a figure of one point one million hectares of available grassland in Ireland. We then further reduced this to seven hundred sixty eight seven hundred sixty eight thousand um, hectares of land, and um, that would be available um, available to grow this grow these feedstocks just due to fragmentation and small farms. So the idea would be what farms would actually um, would this practically suit. The other thing, our, our other calculation in this then was, um, and look, this is based on the Chagas Grass 10 project. Um, if you look at grass production on dry stock farms in Ireland currently, it is approximately six tonnes per hectare dry matter. 
we looked at getting them up to 10 tonne per hectare dry matter as per the Grass 10 project. So we calculated that if we could get a, get an extra four, four uh, tonne of dry matter incremental over and above the six tonne, that we would be able to produce 3.1 million metric, metric tonnes of dry matter in Ireland. When that is um, when that is converted into uh, terawatt hours, that converts to about 9.5 um, 9.5 uh, terawatt hours that grass uh, production in Ireland could produce. Back to you for this one, Russell. Yeah, so so I think you know the overall conclusion on the feedstock is that AD and biomethane in Ireland will not happen if it is eating into feedstock availability for cattle. Um, therefore, it is all about producing incremental feedstock. And as David has shown there, Ireland does have sufficient capacity in our analysis to produce the incremental feedstock to support you know, a, a good-sized um, level of biomethane production. One of the case studies we looked at is Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland has deployed 90 AD plants between 2011 and 2017. And again, there was a fear in Northern Ireland that it was going to fundamentally disrupt the agricultural system. Uh, so we've looked at just what did actually happen over that, that period. So interestingly, deploying 70, uh, sorry, deploying the 90 AD plants, it consumed an incremental 700,000 tonnes of grass silage annually in Northern Ireland. Over that time, the number of dairy cattle grew by 12%. The overall cattle numbers um, increased by 4%. So it certainly did not arrest or stop uh, the growth in animal numbers. Um, and the other stat that was interesting was farmland dedicated to grass actually increased over the period by about 25,000 hectares. And there was including an 18% increase in land with grass less than five years old. So this was suggesting that it did promote a renewed um, optimism and investment profile uh, to bring land back into more productive use. And it's this bringing existing land that's already used for grass production, uh, but reseeding it and optimizing its, its soil uh, fertility to allow you to increase your average uh, tonnage per acre or per hectare up and using that incremental tonnage. So our, Northern Ireland demonstrated that it was able to support these 90 AD plants, which on a pro rata is broadly in line with where the number ROI wants to get to. And it didn't it didn't impact uh, cow numbers. So again, that is a useful uh, statistic and case study. So the third question we looked at, so we've said it's in line with policy direction. We've said that Ireland does have the technical uh, capacity to grow this incremental feedstock. The third question then, would the development of the sector result in an intensification of agricultural activities, including an increased use of chemical fertilizers um, and pesticides? And this is a really important one because there is no point developing a biomethane industry in Ireland to solve an environmental challenge if it actually results in the overall emissions in agriculture increasing, um, and that gas may be helping to decrease emissions in, in industry, but increasing them in agriculture. So it has to be done in a way which does not increase um, emissions in agriculture and does not increase the use of chemicals um, or other fertilizers um, in the sector. So again, David, if you just talk us through the model that you've looked at of how this can be achieved without those negative consequences. No problem, Russell. So... Yeah, so we, mod we modelled this um, up on um, the Chagas National Farm Survey data, so a 32 hectare uh, suckler farm, and uh, what, what would happen on, on that farm. And we modelled two, two, um, 
two situations. So one that um, the farmer keeps his current stock and uh, sells the surplus surplus grass to um, to a, a local AD. And the other option then that we looked at too, if the farmer wanted to uh, maybe get out and um, get out of suckler farming and devote the whole farm to uh, to creating uh, forages for multi or forages for anaerobic digestion, what would that look that what that look like too? And again, so just um, our model is based so it is based on correcting soil fertility, so um, a mass balance on soil fertility, and then um, it's also just to describe it's a, look it's a partial life cycle analysis. We account for all the production or so all the greenhouse gases arising from production, but we don't account for biogenic um, nitrous oxide, methane uh, coming from soil, etc. That's not accounted for. But all production all production uh, greenhouse gases are accounted for. So what we look look at um, in this farm is, and if we are to look at multi-species slaughter cattle, we look at the baseline year. So we created a baseline year for this farm, and what we did then, uh, what what on average they would be producing. Then we employed a multi-species ward and we employed a, a fertilizer program to maintain production and also to build, build soil indexes. Uh, so what we look, look at, we can go basically our baseline year from 194 tonne of grass produced to 312 grass produced. And then if we are to come across to uh, year five, that, that rises to, to 360 tonne produced in year five. And we see, we see that we're starting to, to, to level off. In terms of greenhouse gases, and this is um, this is the most important bit in this is that in the baseline year, we're producing um, 122 ton of CO2 equivalent per year, um, and what we see then in year one, um, that that actually de- decreases uh, to 98. But crucially, when we compare back to our baseline year in year five, we're on 111 um, 111 ton of CO2 produced. Um, so what we're seeing there is that, um, and I'm going to come back, this is the circularity of AD. So as we go from year year one to year five, uh, we need less artificial inputs there. And, and the, um, there's more nutrient coming from the, from the AD, which displaces um, inorganic fertilizers and bring, brings down the carbon footprint. Um, also, what we did in this model is that, look, we, um, we looked at carbon offsets and looked at the, the uh, soil's ability to sequester carbon. Um, I suppose what we we drew here from um, our own research and doubt, but also now this is sort of uh, shown in the literature. Uh, Dario Fanara's work in AFBI in Northern Ireland has shown that it's a long-term slurry experiment in Hillsborough, but it is showing that with, um, with uh, medium to high applications of slurry, and we looked at the medium, the, the medium uh, rate here, that uh, soils can sequester anywhere from... Um, 0.3 of a ton of carbon up to 0.9 ton of a carbon uh, per hectare per year. So we, we looked at that and uh, we looked at that and, and, and applied it to this model. So and to get us to when we take the gross carbon footprint minus what has been sequestered on farm, then brings us to a net a net carbon footprint. And again, what we're seeing is um, year five compared to year one and year baseline. Basically, we have we have a lower figure. So. The, uh, the question is, can we produce um, incremental um, forages for anaerobic digestion um, in an environmentally friendly way? And our model is suggesting that it, it's, it is, is very possible. Just to talk then about the, the table at the bottom of the page. Um, so if the farmer wanted to elect them um, to get, get out of uh, suckler farming and just convert the whole farm to multi-species forage, 
uh, what would happen. And what we see in this scenario is, again, we can, uh, we can grow more grass, but what we are seeing is um, a drastic uh, decrease in the carbon footprint compared to the one with cattle. And the hotspot in this is basically 69% of the emissions in the top table come from enteric methane and nitrous oxide from a fertilizer, fertilizer application. So when we take them out, our carbon footprint drops, drops um, dramatically. And again, if we were to look in the net carbon footprint, uh, from a net carbon footprint point of view, we're actually seeing that potentially this farm is in a negative CO2, is in, an, in a, a negative space for um, carbon emissions and is sequestering is sequestering carbon on, on these farms. So my overall takeaway from that slide is that the average farm in Ireland uh, could increase its production of grass silage uh, by 85% without using any additional land, just by improving the soil fertility, improving uh, its, uh, its, its way it operates. Um, and that's exactly as it was at the heart of this. Can we use the existing land that's already used for grass production improve its, its fertility, increase this incremental grass silage um, and allow then AD to be, to be developed without impacting the current use of, of, of the existing forage. Yeah, that, that, that's very uh, succinct for us. So we get, as I said, um, the other part of this analysis then was looking at the mass balance of nutrients. So again, just to clarify, like the opportunity in Ireland at the moment is that 21% of our soils are at, are, are at optimal fertility. And what we're looking to do, we're supposed we're looking to optimize production rather than maybe maximize, so that if we could get up to, and we call it uh, ten ton per hectare, and um, as as per the grass ten project, the model is actually shown that we could probably we will get to eleven point two ton, um, in, in year five. What um what this sort of what this page is showing. So on the left we have multi-species forage um, exclusively for forage, and then on the right we have multi-species forage and cattle. Just want to show you maybe the, the, the nutrient flows in this. So again, and I'd like to think of this slide, and maybe the best way to explain this slide is um, soil, the soil index is allowed to start. So um, we need to get them up to index three. We can do that with the circularity of the digestate, but we're going to pump, have to pump prime the system with phosphorus and potassium to get them to their target index three. So that's, uh, that's always right. Once we pump prime it, pump prime it to um, index three, then the circularity, um, the circularity, um, get comes into action there. Then and you need, uh, you don't need those external ex external inputs. So after year one, hundred percent of the nitrogen is supplied through the slurry digestate. So the, to the digestate. Um, we don't need that. Um, our work in doubt shows that um, the multi-species wards grow very well on 70 kilos of nitrogen per, per year. 49% um, of the phosphorus will be, will be um, supplied through the digestate at the start, and 22% of the potassium will be supplied through the digestate at, at the start too. As I mentioned on the previous page, um, the, uh, the reduction in artificial nitrogen and enteric emissions in this scenario will reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by 69%. And I said, and the, the uh, life cycle analysis and the model shows that we can go from six ton per hectare dry matter to 11.21 ton um, of um, dry matter per hectare when growing exclusively on the farm or growing multi-species forage exclusively on the, on the farm. 
when we look at, at cattle, when cattle are, so we have half the farm partition for um, cattle production and half the farm partition for growing forage for, them, for the um, local anaerobic digestion, 69% of the nitrogen requirement um, comes from the digestate, 42% of the phosphorus, and 20, 28% uh, of the potassium um, comes, comes from the digested. So again, at the start, external uh, nutrients are needed, but once the, in, once the fertility issues are satisfied, uh, digestate, um, in it, when it's exclusive for AD, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it. And when there's cattle involved, um, small requirements, less than 10% will be needed when there's cattle on the farm. So the next question we looked at is, can an agricultural-led biomethane industry produce green gas, which is able to meet the EU's Renewable Energy Directive 2, which is known as RED2, requirements? So one of the, one of the big challenges, again, which, which is looked at, is that the biomethane produced to, to meet EU standards and be called a green gas has to have a, a CO2 uh, footprint below a certain level, and that is um, going to drop down um, in 2026 to an even stricter standard. So agricultural AD uh, is trickier than, say, waste AD. Waste AD is quite easy to meet this. Agricultural AD is harder. And so we've looked at um, the, the ability to, to develop a system which does meet that. If it doesn't meet that, there is no point developing this sector. So it's a very important threshold to be able to get comfortable one can meet. So David, if you just talk us through some of the analysis that's been done. Yeah, so thanks. And maybe before I talk to that, I'd just like to thank um, the SEAI, Ricardo, Ricardo Energy, and um, Chagas, and especially the people in Chagas, uh, Johnstown, for helping us out with these calculations. So in our report, we looked at three, we had three standard um, practices. So standard ryegrass as our control, uh, the adoption of multi-species forward, and then looking at a hybrid uh, rye clover sward. And um, so to meet the RED2 protocol, protocol, so the RED2 Red is a renewable energy directive, um, you have to reduce your carbon output or your, your, your carbon intensity by 70% by 21, which is represented by, by the blue line on the left graph and the orange lines on the, uh, the two graphs on the right. And by 80% by 2026, so um, which is represented by the red, the red graph on, on, each page, on each page. What we look at in this analysis is the ratio of slurry to grass forage. So this is very important in, a, in an anaerobic digestion system because slurry is a fantastic base for an anaerobic digester, but its calorific value is low because um, when you think about it, a cow is designed for, is designed for millennia to take as much energy as you can out of her feed and leave as little energy as you can in her slurry. And where that's why you're putting in the grass ward, because the grass ward is energy, energy dense, and that gives you energy. But the slurry is fantastic, it's a fantastic base and medium and provides nutrients for the uh, biology and the digester. So you're always, from an economic point of view, we're always looking at the balance between slurry and grass in, in a digester. So if we were to look at the table on the, the left or standard rye grass, it's telling us that, um, and we will concentrate on the on the orange dots that um, we would need between forty and forty five percent slurry addition um, to meet the twenty one target of a seventy percent reduction in uh, CO two from from biogas. So that would allow us to call our biogas carbon neutral. When that goes, um, when that goes, then to our twenty twenty six target of eighty percent reduction in the threshold we need over 50% slurry in, in that mix. So to make, to do a, to run an anaerobic digester on the standard ryegrass by 2026, we need 50% of the energy or the, the feedstock into that digester 
would have to be slurry. When we look at the multi-species board, and here we're, we're concentrating on the blue line, um, in 2021, 30% of the uh, feedstocks would have to come from slurry to comply with the Red 2 protocol. And when we got to 2026, we would have to be little over 40%. So approximately 42% of the feedstock would have to be uh, would have to be slurry. And again, when we look at the hybrid, uh, the hybrid rye and clover and how their compliance with Red 2, um, in 2021, um, we would need a little over 20% to be 20% slurry inclusion to be to, to be um compliant with red two. And by in 2026, we need um 40% slurry. So what the two uh, multi-species forwards and the hybrid rye clover are showing from a, for if I was an operator of an anaerobic digestion system, the profitability of my digester would be a lot more than the one on the left because I can put I can extract, put more higher uh, calorific feedstocks into the digester and extract more energy. So the next question, the next question we've been asked and the next question which we've, we've looked at is, is would the development of the biomethane industry have a negative impact on biodiversity? So biodiversity as a topic is getting an, a lot more prominence um, in, in policy and, and also just in, in, in general. Um, and the, the risk is if you have lovely, lush, biodiverse uh, fields and you come in and replace them with a mono uh, crop, you know, is that going to, and, and how badly would that impact? So, so I think if that's one of the examples of if this is developed in a unstructured way, you can definitely see how it could have. So we've looked at how could you actually protect against any biodiversity loss? And could you in fact use this to increase biodiversity? So David, I'll ask you to look for that, please. Okay, and I suppose what we've looked at, we broke this topic down maybe into two to two sections, Russell, and I'll just I'll start talk on um, maybe the re the resilience first. But we're looking at um, look the resilience on farm of using multi species board. These are results um, from twenty twenty on growing the, the from the Heartland project. So the Heartland project is a systemic systems experiment comparing perennial ryegrass against a permanent pasture ground and a six way multi species board and a twelve way multi species board. And look, what we're seeing is the two multi-species swords at 70 kilos of nitrogen out-yielded the perennial ryegrass on 170 kilos. So it, it, it's growing um, approximately two tonne more grass per hectare. But from a resilience point of view, and I just want to move to the, to the chart on the right, is, and we look at specifically looking at the grey box. So in uh, May 2020, if people can remember, we, uh, we suffered a mini drought in Ireland, if we can call, say that Ireland gets droughts, but we... Uh, definitely um, had a six to seven week period of no rain. And what I just want to show on this chart is, so the, the green and the yellow are um, multi-species wards and the red and the blue are perennial ryegrass and permanent pasture. But during that drought period, the perennial ryegrass, or the, the, the multi-species wards were able to, to grow at a higher growth rate and provide more forage, thus increasing the, 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 um, the resilience on farm, which I think, I think is, a, is a very important point to make. Um, from a bio, biodiversity point of view, then, and look, this is going to look at uh, work done in Douth and also work done in the Smart Grass Project um, conducted by UCD, led by Helen Sheridan, Tommy Boland, and this work um, was done by Ola Schmidt. But we are looking at um, biodiversity. So, obviously, when compared to perennial ryegrass and um, multi species forwards, being six, six species or 12 species um, provides more biodiversity. Um, Provide, provides more biodiversity um, 
by definition. We also are we're carrying out um, earthworm surveys under, underneath our, our plots and what we're seeing, and actually what we're seeing even after in one year is a 300% increase in earthworm activity under the multi-species forage compared to the perennial ryegrass. Um, so that, that's from a, a soil biodiversity point of view, um, that's very interesting. And also obviously from a nutrient cycling point of view, because um, earthworms um, have the ability to make inorganic nutrients organic and, um, and, 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 and cycle better. The chart on the bottom of the page, this is from the Smart Grass Project. And, um, but what it is showing is, and if we look at it, um, we have grass and um, grass um, on the top of the pyramid, legumes to the left and herb to the right. But um, what we're seeing is, um, and we're looks like this is looking at parasitic wasps, is where you have the intersection of um, grasses, legume and herbs, there are there is more biodiversity in 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 those swords. So what we're saying what we're seeing is in uh, in uh, insects and in beetles that intersection of um, of the biodiversity is promoting biodiversity is, is promoting more biodiversity in, in in insects and beetles on top and, and and that's very interesting and again when we look at these from a, a wider biodiversity point of view these species are um, are at a, a lower trophic level in the biodiversity but they provide food and energy to go up the go up the trophic levels um, in, in in a food system and um, we're 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 we are seeing uh, very good results in doubt, but the theory would be that um, greater predators in, in, in the biodiversity in, in, in that system uh, will flourish on the back of this too. Five minutes uh, left, uh, Russell and David. No, no problem. Um, so the next one is, can anaerobic digestion improve soil quality and soil carbon sequestration potential? And this is back to the, the ask of, of government, to, can farmers have a role in further soil carbon sequestration um so you know is there an opportunity here david very good and um the short answer yes there is there is an opportunity here russell um, and again as i spoke before it's about optimizing soils and um, i suppose what we look at we look at and david is through our soil improvement program and um, we look at soils and look it's about optimizing the health and nutrition but it's looking at the physical chemical and biological aspects of soil it's a three-legged stool they all they all support each other um, but getting on to carbon sequestration, and, and um, as I said, the model we used was uh, we primarily used um, Dario Fanara's work um, to show this. And look, we that um, improving soil nutrition and putting um, digestate onto soil will will increase the um, the sequestration in, in soil. And we, we're we're assume our the, the the report or the model works on. Uh, 0.3 of a ton of carbon per hectare, growing to 0.5 of a ton of a carbon per hectare in year four. So as your as your um, soil, as your nutrition improves, so does your carbon sequestration. And actually, I'm just reading papers recently there, and this is sort of borne out again. There are further emissions avoided to this by data borne out in Chagas Johnstown. That um, there's a paper there by uh, Garmichael and Zervik again show that when P and pH are optimized in soil nitrous oxide emissions are reduced as well. So this will be over and above uh, what, what, what we're seeing here. And then, so the, the, the last question here is, how could one ensure that an AD sector is developed according to best practice and does not produce unintended consequences? So as was shown in the last sort of number of questions, 
if you just left this to chance, there is a risk that it is developed in a suboptimal way. So how would you go about it? So one of the ideas that, that, that has been put forward is the development of, of an anaerobic digestion charter. So effectively a charter which could be voluntary or potentially linked to the gas uh, green gas certification scheme or something, which puts down requirements on the development of the sector um, and has, for example, sustainability criteria. So for example, red to alignment, which will already be baked into the green gas certification scheme, but also um, uh, perhaps going further. So having uh, limits on, on the type of land that can be used to supply feedstock in, the biodiversity metrics that must be um, uh, adhered to, et cetera, the, the, the inability to, uh, to put extra fertilizer or inorganic fertilizer down. So effectively ruling out a charter which brings together all of the best practice that um, the sector has gained over the last 20 years across Europe, um, the experience domestically in Ireland for the small number of AD plants that are there, that those in Northern Ireland, and bring this down and provide farmers and those developing the sector with the the, the tools to allow them to develop this in a way that ensures it delivers the benefits, but without the negative unintended consequences. So I think that's largely the end of the formal presentation. I think there is now uh, a bit of time for, for Q&A and the report in its entirety is available on the Gas Network's uh, site and there's a link on the screen there now. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Russell and David. Um, really... Uh, again, never, never been more timely a presentation uh, given the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, I suppose a general, general comment uh, for you in relation to the uh, nutrition of of these, uh, you know, feed, feeding anaerobic digestion uh, systems and um, the reliance on artificial nitrogen uh, to support that. Then, how do you see that working in the future, given the I suppose that the shock that has uh, hit the system at the moment, uh, should we be looking at systems that are that decouple ourselves from uh, the use or reduce our reliance on, on artificial nitrogen? Yeah, I'll maybe have, I'll have a go at that first, Mark. I, I look at absolutely, and I'm thinking, and even look, legumes are the answer here. Like 78% of our atmosphere is nitrogen. Le legumes have the ability um, to to convert that nitrogen into a plant available thing. So I that is our would be a USP for Ireland. So the multi-species swords and clover rich swords, red clover silages, etc. I think that is the um, one of one of the most the best technologies that we have to hand today to uh, reduce our dependency on on artificial nitrogen imports. Okay. There's a, quite a few questions coming through in relation to the the point you were making about the North uh, Russell Around the, the the that there was no difference appeared appeared in relation to the uh, production levels, if I understood that correctly. Um, however, there 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 uh, there is anecdotal evidence there to suggest that there there were that the the, the presence of biomethane or sorry anaerobic digestion in the north did drive the price of um, silage and and conacre in that in the, in that area and that. That maybe that that increase uh, our, our stability in production was as a result of increased uh, use of concentrates in the diets. Had, have you looked at that? Because I know there is a lot of concern there about this food versus fuel debate and uh, whether or not that that would create a, 
uh, additional competition in, in, the, in the, the, the market for land and, and grassland. Just to add to that, Mark, sorry, Russell, the, the, a couple of the questions, Russell, are, are tying in that the systems are very different in the north of Ireland. You know, obviously the dairy system is, is quite indoors in comparison and a, a hell of a lot more concentrates involved. Yeah, yeah. And look, sorry, I absolutely agree that the systems are, are different. It is our closest neighbour, I suppose, um, in terms so there is it is useful still to draw comparisons. So I think, you know, like I, I've, I've been involved in, in a large number of, of the farm skill ADs that are developed. So, I've, you know, a good on the ground feeling for it. There is, without question, localized examples of where farmers were were fighting over over fields um, in their local region, which were were feeding an AD plant versus historically um, into uh, in, into dairy system. So definitely at a localized level, you're going to find plenty of, of examples of that. Uh, more generally, however, the the concept was that you know Northern Ireland isn't perfect. The the concept here is that we're not looking to compete. Same grass that's currently going into a dairy system or into the, the beef system will certainly will suddenly be converted to AD. The, the model that we're promoting here is about incremental feedstock production. And we have plenty of, of AD plants that were built by farmers in Northern Ireland. And they turned their land, which was already producing uh, grass silage for their animals, and they turned it into, rather than just the grass just grew, they turned it into a focus and a system and loads of them were able to double the amount of grass silage that they were growing in their land without doing anything particularly radical. They just never had a need for more grass silage because they, they produced enough for their cattle. When they tried, they were able to substantially increase the volume. And that's what it's about. This, is, this will not work if we're redirecting the grass silage away from cattle and we're competing for the same feedstock. This is all about Ireland using its land more productively to increase the volume and to redirect the increased and incremental volume to the AD sector. So if it's competing, this will not work. Um, and that's where a lot of the research is done. Can we produce this incremental? And the answer is we can. And are there other, other crops that could be, or other uh, substrates that could be used to support AD plants? Um, I know that there's food food waste and there's other, other sources of, of, of uh, digestate or, or slurry that, that goes into these systems. Like the, the optimal feedstock for anaerobic digestion would be waste. So using all waste, using food waste, using commercial food waste, using uh, uh, other waste. So waste is definitely the optimal. The problem with waste is that it, there is a finite volume of it. Um, there are already four to five large AD systems in, in Ireland and Northern Ireland, which are, are soaking up an awful lot of the waste already. So if you want a sustainable long-term and uh, growing sector, you cannot base it on what will be a diminishing volume of waste, which we want to reduce waste generally, um, and it's, it's already largely used up. Um, that's where the UK got, got it wrong. They built a lot of waste plants, and those waste plants assumed at the start they were going to get paid £50 a tonne for the waste. They're now paying £30 a tonne because, you know, there's a finite volume. So if you want a scalable um, industry in Ireland, it has to be built on something that is scalable, and that's, that has to be an agricultural substrate together with whatever wastes are still uh, available in the market. And then just, just sorry, sorry, the other thing that we didn't look, there's obviously the tillage industry in Ireland and the arable sector, um, but we didn't include that in the report because it's, uh, it's harder to quantify, but there is a big opportunity there for temporal lays, uh, sugar beet or fodder beet crops, et cetera, there that could, could feed in locally to digest us as well. Absolutely, There's obviously yeah. huge interest in this area. We've a lot of people on board here today. Um, and Porik, a lot of questions coming through uh, for the lads. 
Absolutely, Mark. Um, and one, like you mentioned, a sustainable system. And obviously, with the current climate, uh, we need it pretty quickly. So there's one question here that came in uh, very early in play, just asking how quick can this be put together? Like from concept to production, is the timeline, are you looking at five years? It said, can you discuss the deployment rollout, the lead in time for pre-development compliance from planning to environmental compliance? Both of these could take up to 18 months each. Um, what's the likely scenario? And how long yeah, can so- it actually take? Yeah, yeah. So, like Northern Ireland is a, a reasonably good example. They they brought in the the subsidy support scheme, and two years later there was there was one AD plant had been deployed, but not an awful lot. Um, so there what there definitely is a lead in time. What I would say is that some of the work that's been done by 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 uh, the likes of, of Gas Networks Ireland of of some of the other representative bodies is about getting mobilised now. There are already AD developers on the ground in Ireland with planning permissions in progress, with environmental permits in progress. So people are starting to mobilize from an absolute stand, a jurisdiction from an absolute standing start. You know, I think those timelines could well be be right. I th- hope we're not at an absolute standing start. We do have got some uh, projects in the system already that are progressing. We've got an ability to learn, um, but it does require government to, to want this to happen. So the planning authorities are gonna have to um, find a way of, of getting it through the system um, efficiently of, uh, and the other piece which we learned from Northern Ireland, if every farmer goes out and chooses a different AD technology, puts in a planning permission using completely bespoke, everyone does it from scratch. What we'd like to do is is find some way of standardising, of providing people with templates, with with um, uh, ways of of moving their environmental permits along faster. faster. Um, okay. But I think I think it, it it's not impossible. You could have an AD plant within two and a half years. I think five years is is not impossible if you had bad luck, but two and a half years is feasible. But we'd have to start now. Um, and yep. that's why we're trying to mobilize the sector. Okay, Mark, there's a hell of a lot of questions here. If we try to couple a few together um, between us, we, we might fly through them quicker. I'm going to throw two at you, David. Um, one yep. in relation to the multi-species swords and the longevity of them. And like, how long will they last? Uh, like, will it deteriorate after the two years? And secondly, from a P perspective, um, if guys are putting out the digestate again and again and again on the same ground, if they're already in index three, is this going to push them into index four? And what do we do with the P then? And I assume the answer is something to do with taking the solids out. Yeah. Um, so maybe the first question, uh, first there, Parik, um, look, multi-species swords, they're not going to last indefinitely. And the same way we put in a ryegrass sword, it's not going to last indefinitely. What we're doing and what, again, what we're showing in the Heartland project is they have to be managed a bit differently. So what we, when we say that, and especially in this situation, it's a cutting situation, that you have to keep keep your mowing bar up probably seven, eight centimetres off the ground so you're not cutting out the growing point of the of the, of the red the red clover. So and um, that, that you're probably mowing at um at you're letting it grow out longer there so you you, you will be uh so mowing when it would be traditionally uh compared to a ryegrass crop that, that you'd think would be mowing for hay so you have to you have to you have to let it that way but look they're not going to last forever but again we also have to think about the way we re- regenerate grass that look we can stitch in the legumes again we can stitch in the herbs if, if needs be and manage them that way so there is active management there and that's something we have to look at and to your second question, and absolutely, look, we can separate out um, separate out solids from from liquids, etc. And um, but you just have to have to remember, and especially if you're in a in a silage cropping situation, that silage is quite sore on phosphorus and potassium. So you do need the, you do need a large amount of nutrients running around this system uh, to, to make it work. And you re, at a very minimum, we have to um, replace the optics. Nine point five terawatt hours. You mentioned, David. Um, 
what proportion of the total grid is that? I'm going to, have to throw that one to Russell there. He'd know that one off the, off the top of his head. Well, that's, put, that, that, that's putting quite a high bar to me. Um, so the, the overall target that that I think industry is, is looking for at the moment is 2.5 terawatts of biomethane by 2030. So the 9.5 is a technical feasibility. I don't think you know we're, we have an ability to deploy it in that time frame. So 2.5 terawatts by 2030, and that's around 125 individual farm-scale AD plants at 20 gigawatt hours each. Um, that would account for around 15% of the industrial and commercial uh, gas that's used in the country. And that's just an important thing to mention here. If, if bio, biomethane is always going to be in short supply, we're never going to have enough biomethane to displace everything we'd love it for. So it's about using it in a targeted way. And the, the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity for biomethane is deploying it where there are other where there are no other viable decarbonisation options available. And the sectors that have been identified is that high thermal temperature uses. So, for example, the milk drying sector uses an awful lot of natural gas at very high temperatures, and there are not that many viable technologies. Electrification is not feasible. And so it's about directing the limited amount of biomethane to those sectors that have no other options. And that becomes then biomethane becomes the cheapest available technology to decarbonize those. So if we could produce 15% of industrial and uh, commercial gas use, that would go a long way to those sectors that don't have other options available. If we make a farm carbon neutral or becoming even a negative because it's a sink, um, where do those emissions come off? Do they come off the energy sector or do they come off the ag sector? Um, it depends on how we look at it. If we're looking at it from a, an inventory point of view, they would, um, let me see, the emissions would come off in soil, would be in the land use and land use chain sector, and then the other emissions would be in the uh, in the energy sector. If we were looking at this from a life cycle analysis point of view, and maybe to build on Russell's point there for argument's sake, that um, if we had a um, Glambia, Dairy Gold, et cetera, drying, drying milk for sale to a consumer-facing brand such as Nestle, and if we were to look at as voluntary carbon credits in their, from sorry, voluntary carbon credits in their, um, value chain, then did they they would accrue they they would accrue or sorry Nestle could buy them in their in their value chain and they could be voluntary offset against against their their emissions which would probably then end up in energy. So A couple of comments on on why you're targeting the beef sector, guys. Um, you mentioned dairy and you seem to be leaving the land in dairy. Um, and that ties into another comment just around the economics of AD. What potential revenue per hectare is there for somebody? What the setup costs are? What grants are available for, set, for setup, etc.? Okay. Um, well, I'll take the first bit of that, Parik. Uh, look, the opportunity is there on in the beef sector to, to grow more forage, basically. So when we look at the average figures, that if we can go from six to 10, that, that's where the opportunity is. Um, again, the, on, on average, um, dairy farms are growing are growing more forest, so incrementally the opportunity is is, is less there. Um, on the second part of that question, again, maybe Russell, do you have a would you have a, an insight into that? I just repeat the second question again for me. This, just on the economics of AD, what yeah. possible revenue is there available for for farms? I guess you're you're tying in with the Chagask um, e profit monitor and so on and yes. Yeah, so look, I don't, I don't have the stats in, in front of me. What I'd say, though, is that if you are a dairy farmer, um, you're going to be able to have more profitability from remaining in dairy. Um, if you're an average beef farmer, there is probably a better economic return um, from, from producing grass silage into AD. What I would say, though, is Ireland does not have any subsidy for the gas. Now, at the moment, current gas prices by methane is relatively cheap. 
um, and you'd have a very economic AD plant um, without question. I don't think we're predicting in the long term gas prices will stay at this elevated level. What the government is likely to announce fairly shortly is the introduction of a renewable heat obligation scheme. That renewable obligation scheme will put an obligation on any large thermal energy suppliers that they must produce, purchase um, a proportion of their gas from renewable sources such as biomethane. And we're expecting that that will provide a statutory demand for biomethane. Um, and if those suppliers don't purchase the gas, they'll have to pay a fine, which will underpin a, a, a value for this biomethane. So we think there will be a statutory instrument which will create the demand. It'll create a price point that will allow this to be economically viable and for the AD plant to buy the feedstocks, such as grass, at a point that is sensible and attractive uh, to the farming industry. The government did mention, uh, or there has been mention of uh, the cap coming into play here to support farmers uh, in uh, rolling out AD plants. How, how do you expect that? Or uh, has there been any mention of how that might manifest itself? Are we talking capital incentives or actual uh, incentives to uh, to grow uh, feedstock? What, yeah. What's your thinking there? Like, I'm not sure. I haven't seen. I haven't seen any detail. I've certainly seen that mentioned. Um, I think the Europe did announce a 400 million package of grants um, very recently that that individual jurisdictions can apply for. Um, so we'd need the Department of Agriculture to, to effectively apply on behalf of Ireland. So there are European level grants aimed at stimulating more investment in the sector. The changes to CAP to support it. I'm not sure if the details available yet. Just you mentioned, Russell, that it can be economically sustainable, obviously, with prices going up. That Does that take into account that the beef farmers will have to make the investment to set up the, the plant itself? Or is it just supply? Um, um, so say the question again. Just, just... I assume if somebody is going to just take a round figure of three million to set up the plant. Yep. And you, you maintain that moving from being an average beef farmer, obviously scale of farm, et cetera, has to come into consideration. But if it's going to cost three million to set up a, a plant, will that make the farm then more sustainably from an economic point of view uh, viable than, than what it currently is? Is that that's your point? Yeah, like I think ultimately there's going to be a level of investment um, and it's not going to be, we're not, it's unlikely given the scale of land needed for an AD plant. The average AD plant will need 1,000 acres of land to, to feed it with its multi-species swords or grass alley. So this is likely to be a, an AD plant located on, on a farm supported by feedstock coming in from a number of, 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 number of farms. So that's, that's a question that came in as well, just around your vision for the AD sector. So if it's a thousand acres, is it going to be a cooperative or is Devonish going to sponsor a number of them across the country or KPMG going to go out and get investors or, or what's the, the yeah, vision? Like the very first uh, farm scale AD plant that I, I raised funding for was three individual farmers in Cookstown in Northern Ireland. They were a beef farmer, a sheep farmer and, and, uh, I think uh, at the dairy or something. Um, and the three of them came together um, and between them, they had you know, enough land and they had enough slurry. They built it on a piece, a piece of land owned by one of them that was fairly central and the three of them then owned a third of it. Um, and that was a brilliant model. And you know, they're, they've found it a big success. They've expanded it. They've invested in, in further AD. Um, and you know, that's, I think, a, a perfect example of how the model could work. Okay, just from a sustainability perspective, then there are a number of questions here around how far away you mentioned a thousand acres um, or hectares, maybe. Um, excuse me if I got that wrong, but uh, acres, how many, yeah. uh, how many, um, or what distance? What's the max distance that the individuals can travel uh, from to to the core AD plant? And um, have you looked at the LCA of obviously upgrading machinery, the use of diesel, et cetera, et cetera? 
Yeah, so you know the numbers that, that David's included in, in, in the life cycle analysis includes the, the movement, you know, the, the harvesting of, of the silage, the, the transportation of it from the field to the to the clamps, etc. So that's definitely been in, incorporated. In reality, you want one of when we looked at the optimum size, in theory, you can get a lot of economy of scale if you build a really, really big AD plant. The problem is you're then having to pull feedstock from further and further away. So there's an optimum size, and we think it's 20 gigawatt hours. Uh, which gets you some economies of scale, but also allows you to source feedstock from a reasonable distance. Yeah. We wouldn't want to be bringing grass silage more than, I think, 10 kilometers. You wouldn't want to be bringing yeah. slurry more than maybe three or four kilometers. And David, with the sale, sorry, go ahead, Dave. No, I'm just going to add the other thing on that too, but like there are new technologies out there for dewatering slurry on farms so that look, you can basically concentrate the energy. So if we can dewater slurry on farm with some type of maybe a mobile unit, then the economics of transporting that are, are completely different than transporting um, 90% water or 95% water. And will we get to the stage where those farms will be able to export and obviously given fertilizer prices and nitrogen prices where they are today, that they'll be able to export um, fertilizer to other farms? Yeah, well, if you take the scenario that we're talking about there, like with a, a centralized AD plant, if all this is uh, centralized, then we have the ability to um, to to separate into solids and uh, liquid, so that you can we could get to a facility that are to a point then where you could make uh, specific blends that would that would go back to certain farms depending on the, on their soil nutrient profile, and ex- excess then could be uh, could be sold within within the community. Okay. Have you looked at employment um, and how it can, or you might let into the scenario for rural Ireland? Um, the report didn't look at employment per se, but Russell, I'd say you'd have a, a better idea of that. Yeah, so we have done a separate report. I just don't have the numbers in my head, I'm afraid. We did do a business case for biomethane uh, rollout in, in Ireland, and we looked at the role of, from an economic contribution. I don't have the numbers in, in front of me. That's something we could, we could always come back to. Mark, we could give another hour at this. Very easily, yes, indeed, and um, huge, huge amount of interest in this topic. So, um, so David, Russell, we might be getting you back again in in, in some t- sometime in the future. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we're just out of time. Uh, Russell from KPMG and David from Devonish, we do appreciate your time and in, in coming to present today. And uh, a reminder to everybody that uh, the presentation will be available on the Chagas website over the, the coming days. Porik, thanks very much for helping with the questions. And um, next week, we will be ch- uh, changing uh, the days because of uh, the St. Patrick's uh, holiday weekend. We're going to be uh, coming to next Wednesday morning, the 16th of March. And we'll be joined by Rory Summers, who is policy lead on microgeneration with the Department of Environment, Climate and Communication. So he's going to be talking about uh, microgeneration support, the new microgeneration support scheme. Uh, which I know is a huge amount of interest uh, at the moment. So that's continuing our team looking at energy production. So for now, we, we'll see you uh, uh, next Wednesday. Uh, thanks to uh, Parik again for helping with questions and to Yvonne uh, helping in the background with the technical side. And of course, Andy Boland, our series producers. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.